All right, and welcome back. Welcome back to the program. This is Gesundheit with Jacobus, and I'm your host, Jacobus Holloway. And Dr. Robert Shaney is with us today in the studio talking about pulmonary health. Uh, he's a critical care specialist, uh, moved to the Bozeman area. His specialty is high-altitude lung health and so coming to this area of course uh, is very helpful because we have so much skiing going on over here people changing uh, uh, altitude all the time and i know chuck over here in the studio is a big time skier and uh, chuck uh, goes high and low but that is not just with skiing chuck right isn't it uh, i mean i just want to make that very clear that is very Correct. Yes. You've been high even if you weren't on the mountains. That's right. Higher <laughs> and a hippie in a helicopter. <laughs> That's a new one. I never heard that one before. You ever any experience like uh, going skiing? You you've been skiing so much. Um, you ex- make uh, some of the things that Dr. Shaney is talking about. You see that indeed with skiing that things change in your head. You get lightheaded or when you go up really high or not. Uh, yeah, especially if you haven't been in the mountains for a while, and if you go oh. to altitude, um, you can experience headaches, cramps, little disorientation. Uh, Is that lactic acid, Dr. Shaney? Is that uh, lactic acid uh, buildup or not? When you do exercise and you lose your oxygen at a high elevation, it's just cramping. The cramping, I'm not... Sure, other than the fact that sometimes uh, the hyperventilation will cause shifts in calcium that will make your muscles cramp. But certainly the other things that Chuck described are from lack of oxygen. Okay. And uh, the body's the body needs time to adapt to low oxygen right. because the air is thinner the higher you go. The percentage of oxygen in our atmosphere from sea level to the stratosphere is 21%. And that's been part of the Earth's atmosphere for maybe three billion years. People have calculated that. Mm. But uh, the difference is that the density of the air, air is air is air weighs something. Yeah. And at sea level it's measured in barometric pressure uh, of say seven hundred and sixty millimeters of mercury. Okay. And this was discovered by European scientists back in the seventeen sixteen and seventeen hundreds, mm-hmm. that air actually had weight. But is, if you come to Bozeman, at about 5,000 feet, the barometric pressure is less, Yeah, maybe 660. Okay. And it's, it's pretty much linear from sea level to the summit of Mount Everest. Summit of Mount Everest, for instance, which we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. the barometric, barometric pressure is about 250 wow. millimeters of mercury. So you have one-third of the amount of oxygen. So in order to get enough uh, oxygen molecules into the lungs, into the blood, into the muscles and the brain and so forth. Since the air is very thin, very thin. you need to breathe proportionally that much more. Okay, so you have a little short, bre- short breathing going on. Well, just more breathing, just deeper, in fact. Can deeper. You, you actually go... <sighs> well, you, yes, when you exercise... And this so is, it's easier uh, than to inhale deep and exhale when you're up high. Well, it is, except you have to do a lot more of it. Okay. See, the air is less dense, so that moving that air through the airways is easier. Mm-hmm. But the amount of air that you need to move, uh, that work, the work of breathing, which it uh, outstrips mm-hmm. the lower density in the gas. Right. So uh, I, li- I liken it to, I mean, some of our high altitude research really translates very directly into patients with lung disease. Okay. In other words, the work of breathing at 
14,000 feet, 20,000 feet or higher is very high. The work of breathing for a patient with emphysema, yeah. where there is much more resistance in the airways, in other words, rather than breathing through a garden hose, the patients with asthma and emphysema are breathing through something much smaller, like say a straw. A drinking straw. Mm -hmm. And so in order to move that much air, it takes a lot of work. Yeah. So some of the, the work we've done looking at the muscles of breathing, the diaphragm and the intercostal muscles, translates directly into patients with emphysema who, mm. who have uh, a, a great deal of difficulty just moving air across their airways. Hmm. Now, uh, Chuck, and I don't know if you've ever done that, but uh, there are people who make almost a sport out of skiing a lot of vertical feet in one day. Like they, they go up and down, up and down. They try to get as many vertical feet in. Oh, that's right. They have a uh, thing at Ridge of Bowl, the king and queen of the ridge. And uh, last year, I believe the winners made 24, 24 trips to the ridge in one day. Wow. 24 and that's, trips. And that's a uh, hoof in it. <laughs> 24 trips in one day. Wow, that is, uh, that's unbelievable because the lift only goes up so high. The rest you have to climb. Right. And um, since the first year I've, I've lived here. I was never, I never really enjoyed that hike. I'll do it, but I've never really enjoyed it. So, but then they would ski all the way down to the bottom and then go back up again? Well, for the king and queen, they just ski back down to the top of the bridger lift. Okay. And so they would be doing like 500 vertical at a pop. Now, as far as physiology is concerned, Dr. Shinny, um, what does that do to the body? You should see some of those people that run, literally run up the ridge. Really, even yeah. after several times. Oh yeah, well then you got guys like Scott Creel that can do uh, the back or the Bridger Ridge run in less than three hours. It's twenty some odd miles in less than three hours. That's just motor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think all of those people, Chuck, that you're talking about are are great aerobic athletes. Yes. And by aerobic athletes, they have capabilities of very high oxygen consumptions, uh, endurance, and of course they train and live. Uh, doing those things so that the altitude to them is a bit relative. I, mean, I assume most of them live here or a little bit higher, so they have a little bit of preliminary adaptation, mm -hmm. and then they spend as much time, again, I imagine, as they can higher up, nine and 10,000 feet. And those altitudes, certainly, if you lived at sea level and came to those altitudes to try to exercise vigorously, mm -hmm. uh, you just can't do it. And there have been a lot of studies starting back in the 60s. And, of course, the interest in all this started during the Mexico City Olympics oh. in 1968, Eight. which was yeah. at about 7,200 feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it became apparent that people coming from low altitude to Mexico City couldn't perform quite as well if they didn't have time to acclimatize or do some training at altitude. Hmm. And the track and field team for the United States, for instance, trained at Lake Tahoe, which six to seven thousand feet so they had a little bit of adaptation is that why bob beeman jumped as far as he did well that's part of it yeah remember in 1968 bob beeman jumped 29 feet two yeah. inches i think yeah uh lee evans set a world record in the 400 meters which stood for 20 years Jeez. and tommy smith ran the 200 faster than it had ever been run at that time mm -hmm. and part of that for short uh, distance events say 800 meters and shorter, the decreased density of the air actually makes a, a beneficial difference. I see. But for events greater than two minutes, the times were slower. Okay. 
Okay. And the, the other famous race of that Olympics, of course, was Jim Ryan and Kip Kano. Ryan being one of the greatest. Was that the 10K? It was a 1500. 1500, okay. Yeah, that was, uh, Ryan was one of the great athletes of his era running the middle distances, and he was a, a favorite. But he was beaten by a Kenyan, mm. Kip Kano. Mm -hmm. And people said, oh, it must be the altitude where Kano lives in Kenya at about 7,000 feet. So everybody started training at altitude, which is a whole other topic maybe we can get into later. Yeah. They're, they're, it's not all benefit. But my contention was that the, the Kenyan children run to school 10 miles every yeah, day. Yeah, don't have a bus. And we ride in a bus. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, and yeah. it, there are a lot of genetic things as well. But yes. um, So anyway, the, the point is that the folks who live here at 5,000 feet and play in the mountains and train in the mountains uh, are great athletes who can run up and down Bridger Bowl. That is amazing, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, folks, 522-TALK, 522-8255. If you have a question about pulmonary health, uh, things about your lungs, uh, Dr. Robert Shaney is here to answer your questions. If you have, you're dealing with a certain disorder, such as asthma, allergies, bronchitis, emphysema, um, pulmonary fibrosis, what my mom is uh, suffering from, uh, by all means, call. 522-8255 is that number, and then we'll, uh, we'll address it accordingly. Um, Dr. Shaney, what is high altitude? Well, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, but it, high altitude is where the air is less dense than it is at sea level. And as uh, a, a clinician or a physiologist, we like to categorize altitude into uh, you know, mild high altitude, moderate high altitude, and extreme high altitude. The Altitudes of say five to ten or twelve thousand feet, or moderate altitudes. Altitudes where many people who live at low altitude go to train or recreate or have fun. Mm -hmm. And then above there, we get into sort of the intermediate between moderate and extreme altitude, maybe four, thirteen thousand feet to say twenty thousand feet. And then above twenty thousand feet being extreme altitude. And it's interesting that the terrestrial limit, as well as the physiologic limit for humans happens to be probably Everest, meaning it's 29,000 feet. And as I mentioned, the air is one-third the density there, one-third the, the availability of oxygen as it, as it is at sea level. So oh. that's the way we define high altitude. And we look at high altitude also in terms of where people can live and thrive. Mm -hmm. And we look at populations in Tibet, Ethiopia, South America, 12 to 14 to 15,000 feet where people live. Higher altitudes where uh, Tibetan yak herders may go to uh, take their yaks up to, say, 19,000 feet in the summer, but realizing, too, that humans really can't live for long periods of time mm -hmm. above, say, 17,000 feet. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. been shown historically in South America in the mines, where there, uh, there was a, uh, a mine called Aconquilcha, which has still existed in northern Chile, where we did some research years ago. and. Uh, when they built that mine, they moved the people from the village up to 19,500 feet. And they couldn't reproduce, they couldn't thrive, so they brought the people back down to their villages of 14,000 feet, and the miners commute every day Oh wow! to 19,000 feet. So these are altitudes, and as I said earlier, humans are probably tropical creatures. Mm -hmm. And if you look at human evolution and history of our species, probably beginning in East Africa, 
mm-hmm. as all the paleontologists think happened, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then migrating north into Europe and then around through Ethiopia. Ethiopia has a high-altitude plateau, mm-hmm. some people staying there, the Tibetan plateau, Himalayan plateau, uh, people staying there, and then up into north and down into South America. And in South America, the high-altitude natives or the South American humans have probably been there maybe 14,000 years, which really is not very long no. in terms of mm-hmm. evolutionary adaptation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the Himalaya, no one knows for sure, but maybe 75, maybe even 100,000. There's a lot of debate about that. Hmm. And in Ethiopia, maybe even longer. And huh. Ethiopians, which have not been studied very well at all yet for political reasons and uh, difficulty in getting into Ethiopia, yeah, yeah. but the Ethiopians probably are even better adapted than the Tibetans. The, high altitude, the, the Tibetan natives are exquisitely adapted to high altitude, and wow. I think the Ethiopians might be a little bit better. Huh. Wow, it's just, uh, you know, just thinking about it, it's just fascinating. At 19,000, is it always cold? Is it always, uh, I mean, what if the sun shines? Is it nice? Is it comfortable t-shirt weather, or is it really cold? Well, when we were in uh, northern Chile, and also, I've done some work in Peru, in the Andes there, because it, those areas are somewhat equatorial. It's, it can be very cold, but it, it many times isn't. Mm. So that from a weather standpoint, these altitudes uh, are livable. Okay. From a high altitude standpoint, an oxygen standpoint, not long, really. They aren't. Mm-mm. But uh, it, for instance, in the Himalaya, where you're starting to get, you're still somewhat equatorial, but you're getting away from. Uh, there, the weather at 19,000 feet can be pretty good, but it's still a little bit cold. Of course, on, in Alaska, on Denali, where we did some work uh, years ago, uh, you're at 65 degrees north latitude, and it's cold. Yes. Almost all the time. Did you climb in the winter or in the summer? Uh, in uh, on Everest, Everest? We were there in the fall of 1981, so okay. fall time. Yeah. Wow. So... Um, we talk well let's let's talk about oxygen why do we need oxygen well oxygen as i said in terms of our earth has at some periods of time been higher mm-hmm. it's been as high as 30 percent it's thought by the uh, the people who study those things whereas for the last couple billion years it's it's been as i mentioned about 21 percent of the atmosphere and Single cellular organisms and then multicellular organisms, mammals, reptiles, and so forth, eventually evolved to need oxygen. Mm. And oxygen is really the substrate that is burned in the mitochondria, which are the little subcellular parts of our muscles. Mm. Yeah, where they generate Mm -hmm. energy. So oxygen, which is available in the air, is brought into the lungs. The blood that flows through the lungs picks up that oxygen, carries it to the muscle, the brain, the gut, the kidneys, and so forth, and whatever those tissues need at the time, they extract the oxygen from the blood, give back what's left over, and it, that's, then that goes back to the lungs, and mm-hmm. you blow off carbon dioxide, which is the, uh, the byproduct of oxidative metabolism, okay. and that's the cycle. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, oxygen is is critical to uh, cellular function, and it's interesting though that cells can function pretty well with very low uh, concentrations of oxygen. Mm-hmm. But one thing that cells can't do very well with is lack of blood flow with the oxygen 
to the to the cells. Okay. So that when we have patients who are suffering from lung or heart disease, live at a little bit of altitude, for instance, so their oxygen level is even lower, mm-hmm. and that's very relevant even to Bozeman, mm-hmm. which is not that high, mm-hmm. but for people who are on the limit mm-hmm. of heart and lung disease, the cell uh, the cells suffer mm. or can suffer, mm-hmm. but the cells suffer much worse if the blood doesn't flow there. Okay. So it's yes. important to pump that blood mm-hmm. with the oxygen, whether it's high or low, to the cells so the cells can metabolize it. Mm. Interesting, on an embryonic level, babies don't really, they live, they breathe, but the lungs are not really active, right? Not at all. So how does this work? Well, in uh, during gestation, blood flow, because of the flow through the heart, is uh, directed away from the lungs because the lung, there's no air, obviously. Correct. And so the lungs are dormant, so to speak. The blood flows away from the lungs, but the oxygen in the baby's blood comes, of course, from the mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that blood, uh, which just uh, circumvents the, uh, the, the lung lungs, mm-hmm. goes down into the, the left side of the heart, and then that pumps the blood into the body. And the blood has the oxygen. The baby extracts it, and then it goes through that cycle. So the lungs just lie dormant during uh, yeah. gestation. Fascinating, isn't it? I mean, what's because we, you have an organ that is developing to do something phenomenal, and it's not really functioning. What's even more interesting to me is the fact that you're right. During gestation, nine months, the, the lung is developing but isn't used, and then suddenly it's used. It hurts. has to work just like that. It has like to work that. just like that. And <laughs> I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm amazed that it actually happens and yeah. we've evolved to allow that to happen yeah yeah so geez amazing um now the uh, i was going through uh, one of the books that you wrote uh, that you co-wrote uh, with uh, john west is a book that came out high altitude medicine and physiology and um in this book amongst other things i understand this is like a phenomenal piece of work uh, from what from one of the reviews that i read it's it's like this was a long time coming and and um, uh, it's not an it's not a cheap book, and it is like a, what is it like about one hundred and forty five dollars or something? But how many pages is it? Um, I think it's like twelve thousand or something. No, no, no. <laughs> it's one, one for every foot of the Himalayas. <laughs> yeah, I think it's I forget it's probably about five hundred pages, but it it covers it's pretty readable, and a, a lot of people that's what have, it says. Yeah, a lot of people have bought it. it. It covers not only the science end of high altitude; it covers the clinical part. It covers the human evolutionary part at high altitude. Yeah. It covers altitude illnesses that many low altitude people incur, including those folks coming to ski at Big Sky or yeah, even yeah, Bridger, yeah. for instance. Mm-hmm. It it covers exercise performance. It co- covers training and so forth. So it's phenomenal. Yeah, is it available in Bozeman? I know Paul Barnes and Noble, I think, uh, sells it. Or I, you know, I don't know. I in fact, Amazon. Uh, Amazon, you can get, get it yeah. right there. Yeah, it's called High Altitude Medicine and Physiology, and it uh, the last edition came out on June 14 of 2007. Yes. And um, but one of the things that it talks about, one thing that you just mentioned, is the uh, the ill effects that people can get at high altitude, and some of the disorders like acute mountain sickness. And and uh, one of the articles that I read was uh, by uh, a colleague of yours, Jean Paul Richelet. Richelet, mm-hmm. how do you say it? Richelet. Richelet. And um, I don't know exactly, ACZ is the medicine, medication that they use. Is, uh, how do you say it? Acetazolamide? Acetazolamide or Diamox. Okay. 
But apparently, uh, reading that, it seems to be a very cheap medicine. But uh, they tested it at 250 milligram and 750 milligram. How much did people need to take in order to actually breathe better? Is this something that uh, that you took with you on some of your expeditions and research just to see what, what effect it was and then you started writing about it as well? Yes, uh, acetazolamide or Diamox has been used for a number of years to prevent altitude illness. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, it's a very available drug. It, it was originally uh, developed uh, for two things. One is a diuretic. Mm. It, it's a mild diuretic. It's mm-hmm. not uh, potent like a lot of the new uh, newer diuretics. Uh, but also for the treatment of glaucoma, oh, and that some physiology in the eye, it, uh-huh. but it, it it inhibits an enzyme called carbonic anhydrase, which is a very uh, it's an enzyme that is throughout all of our body that helps to transport carbon dioxide from the cells to the to the lung, mm-hmm. and acetazolamide, it, it's several of its effects probably mimic normal human adaptation to high altitude, except it does it quickly. I see. So that for going to Tibet to go trekking or Nepal or South America or to go skiing, uh, say if you live at sea level and want to go to Colorado at 9,500 or 10,000 feet, it's a very helpful drug uh, to minimize or prevent uh, acute mountain sickness, which is very, very common. But they also, I think in one of the articles I read, it said you don't, want to, you don't need higher dosages per se, because it actually won't have the effect. Right. It's better to do like 250 milligram three times a day than doing 750 several times a day. Well, it's even lower doses have been even shown. Lower doses, yeah. yeah, there are some side effects which are not very harmful, but disconcerting. Some people, it upsets their stomach a bit. But the, the dose that's used most commonly now is 125 twice a day. That's it, huh? Milligrams. And it, it uh, helps sleep. It helps performance. And it minimizes altitude illness, which, wow. which we can talk about we'll later. We'll talk about when we come yeah. back. Folks, a very powerful program today with Dr. Robert Shaney uh, in the studio with us talking about pulmonary health. If you have a comment or a question, by all means, call us at 522-TALK, 522-8255. You can also contact him at the Bozeman Deaconess Hospital, where he is working right now. And uh, there is tons of information you can find from him talking to him over there. His number at the Deaconess is 522-2400, 522-2400. Stay tuned, please. We have two more hours talking about lung health when we come back. 